we're going to be, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you could turn to the book of James near the end as you're cruising along, you'll hit Hebrews, the next book is James, and we're in the back, I don't know, tenth of your Bible. So we're going to take a look at uh, a new series in the book of James, and I actually just wanted to read the intro that the ESV has on the book of James, because I thought it was actually pretty good. The letter of James, sometimes called the proverb of the New Testament, this, the book of James practically and faithfully reminds Christians how to live, from perseverance to true faith to controlling one's tongue, submitting to God's will and having patience. This book aids readers in living authentically and wisely for Christ. Many have claimed that James and the Apostle Paul differed on the questions of faith versus works. But in reality, the spiritual fruit that James talks about simply demonstrates the true faith which Paul wrote. Their writings are complementary rather than contra contradictory. Possibly one of the earliest New Testament writings, this book is believed to be have written by Jesus' brother, James. Some people, they talk about James, because James, as we go through the book of James, you're going to see it's going to be a lot about how we work out our faith. It's going to talk a lot about how we live, live our lives, and as, as that intro said, about how we control our tongues and, and all that stuff. And we know that, that we're saved by our faith alone, and I heard this description, I thought it was great. It's like, like Pauline theology and the book of James is like a spring on either end of the trampoline mat both required to keep the mat taut. Our salvation by faith and our outworking of our faith. So I thought that was just a great analogy about these, the differences and the similarities and how they intertwine. The reality is, is that the entire word of God is like dovetail drawers, is it not? That are perfectly fit together and serve a purpose and are strong and can carry load and put lots of stuff in them and be useful. So anyhow, let's just dive into the text straight off the top. It, it starts off with a very simple introduction. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's such a simple, simple introduction, but it actually kind of blew my mind when I started thinking about it. Because when I started thinking about who James was, this is Jesus' half-brother. You know how I said before that me and my brothers aren't really that close? You know, every family has different family dynamics, does it not? I can only imagine how it would have been living growing up with Jesus. We know actually from the Gospels that Jesus' family came to seize him. In the book of Mark chapter 3, his family tried to seize him when a crowd gathered near him, and they said he's out of his mind. In Luke chapter 4, we see that uh, Jesus was teaching in Nazareth at the synagogue. And a crowd ensued, and they, they, they wanted to chase him off the cliff. Now, for those of us who are in Israel, that's in Nazareth, it's Mount Precipice. And it's this huge cliff. It's, it's, it's a cliff. Big rocks, boulders, that's all it is. It overlooks the valley of Megiddo. Um, the, the, they say that often the first step in stoning someone was to toss them off a cliff because they'd fall, hurt themselves, be incapacitated, and they could carry on with the stoning. Then Jesus snuck away. The reality is that, that was his home synagogue that he was raised in, that he grew up in. That's where his family would have attended. 
John chapter 7, verse 5 said that Jesus' brothers did not believe him. But what does James say here, you know, maybe 20 years later? It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant is the one we're familiar with in the New Testament. It's the doulos. It's the bondservant. If you're not familiar with that, that in, in the Old Testament, if, if you owed a debt or you were indentured as a slave for whatever reason and you served your, perp- your time under your master and you actually were un- had a good master and he loved you and cared for you well, maybe had given you a wife and now you had a family and a home and at the end of your, your, your time that you're indentured to him, he said, you know, I love my family. And I actually love my master. You've taken well care of me. They would, he would go to his master and say, I want to be your servant for the rest of my life. And they'd take his ear and they'd stretch it out and they'd drive an awl through it. And they say that sometimes they'd put a ring in that ear. They would pierce the man's ear. So if, men, if your ears are pierced, it's like a, saying you're a bondservant. <laughs> but that was the idea. It was, it was you are a servant out of love for your master for life. James went from being a critic of his brother, as many of us are of our siblings, to saying, I'm a doulos, I'm a bondservant of God and my brother, half-brother. He went from just the brothers down the hall or the annoying brother who had the top bunk in the bunk bed that kept you awake because he slept like a football player to Lord means power and authority. I don't know what they would have called Jesus growing up. We probably all had nicknames as we grew up in our houses. I don't know if he was Big J or what. The reality is we know that his Hebrew name was Joshua, which was a common name. But it really means Jehovah is salvation. That's what he's declaring in this introduction, that his brother Big J is Jehovah is salvation. If he was part of that mob in Nazareth, he was considering killing his brother. And a few years later, we know that James was one of the early martyrs for the faith. Josephus tells us it was 62 AD, Clement Clement says 69, but what is consistent is that he died upon the confession of his faith in Jesus Christ. Something substantial happened in this man's life that he went from just my big brother to my Savior, my God, my Messiah, Christ. You know, the reality is that James had a meeting with the resurrected Jesus Christ. He touched his life as he has done with many of our lives. He's touched his life, changed his mind, transformed by the renewing of his mind. You know what else I like about James? He's changed a lot. He's accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, even though he was his big brother down the hall. But he's obviously a man of humility. If you read through the book of James, you will not see one time that he dropped the brother card. I'm sure any one of us, if we were writing this letter, somewhere along the line, we would have snuck in something about 
oh yeah, you know, my brother or, you know, oh, when our mom, when our dad, that time when we were kids, somewhere we would have dropped the brother card. I know I sure would have. That's kind of how we're wired. But James was humble and recognized that Jesus was the Savior, is the Savior. He goes on to say who the letter is written to. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You know, the early church was almost exclusively Jewish. Jesus' ministry was in Israel. That's where the church started. That's where the believers started. That's where they were spread out from. And it says to the 12 tribes, not to one tribe or to two tribes or to the top tribe or to the bottom tribe. It's all 12. That's from the Danites to the Levites. And everyone in between. That's the priest. That's the ruling class. You know, I, I, you only look, have to look at like John chapter 19. We see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These guys were the elite. They were the rulers. I, I heard an incredible sermon on these two guys just recently. But in that sermon, the pastor had, had been referencing Josephus again, who said that Joseph of Arimathea was considered to be one of the three wealthiest men in Israel in the day. That's like having a Donald Trump kind of guy come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and he served actually before Jesus was resurrected, before he actually probably fully grasped and understood the reality and the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus affected all classes. It's not the lost ten tribes, it's people from every tribe. And now we know that they've been dispersed. We only need to look at, you know, look at Saul who became Paul, who stood there as, as Stephen was stoned in the early, early days of the church. They came under persecution immediately from the ruling elite, the Sadducees and whatnot. They sent these guys out to chase them down, to imprison them, to kill them as Saul did until Saul was met by the resurrected Jesus as James was. So I think it's, it's really simple but profound at the same time that this letter is the brother of Jesus writing it, declares Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and that it's to every people in the nation of Israel, all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what? For us now, that's every tribe, every tongue, every color, every creed, as the gospel went out. It's actually interesting that they came under persecution because the persecution helped the spread of the gospel, did it not? As they spread out, they moved out from the boundaries of Israel to the known land and spread the gospel alongside with them. I think it's beautiful. And then he says greetings. The only other time greetings are used in a letter is when James, in Acts 15, responds to the letter that Paul and Barnabas brought to the Jerusalem council. So greetings, it's the idea of rejoicing. It's an expression of goodwill. So greetings to all of us who are in Jesus Christ, who've put our faith in him. It says, count it all joys, my brothers or brethren, when you meet various tri or trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't know about you, but these are the promises of God 
the first little bit that I never like. I never like hearing that I'm going to have trials and tribulations. But the reality is, this is a promise throughout Scripture, that we are going to have trials and tribulations, but that the Lord will be with us. In fact, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, brothers, sisters, brethren. It's an accounting term to count it, consider it, to deem it. Actually, it's almost essentially to behold, to think on these things. He says, if if you've got a ledger book going on, take these trials and put them on the joy column. I know it doesn't make sense, does it? A Bible uh, um, encyclopedia that I was looking at said, Christian joy is no mere gaiety that knows no gloom, but is the result of triumph of faith over adverse and trying circumstances, which instead of hindering actually enhances it Compare even our Lord himself, for that the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Even Jesus found joy as he served, his Lord, or as he served the Lord and fulfilled the purpose set out before him. He says, when you meet various kinds, King James says, diverse temptations. Some say manifold trials and temptations. It's a when, it's a not if. Trials and temptations will come in our life. In fact, I believe that if there is no trials and temptations, we might be ask, have some questions to ask of ourselves. Either one thing, I'm not on the devil's radar to be attacked because I'm in a position of compromise. Or I better be ready because something's coming. You know, the reality is that God allows trials in our lives, does he not? We only need a thumb over into the Old Testament and look at the book of Job and the account of Job's life. And we see that Satan was allowed to sift Job. The Lord allowed it. And it almost seems strange in our minds, but the Lord allowed it. He had a purpose in it. Sometimes we're, we're, we're drawn away by trials and temptations of our own doing, of our own tripping up. Later on in, in the book of James, we'll see the reality, as also described in Jeremiah, that our hearts are deceitful and evil, that sin is birthed in our hearts. Sometimes I believe God allows us to go through a test to teach us about our sin nature. But there's a distinct difference between when God allows a test and when the Satan comes and throws one under our feet. I was reading a commentator, John Corson, he said, you see what God will send or allow as a trial to strengthen our faith, Satan will exploit to get us to sin. Conversely, what Satan throws our way as temptation, God allows to be a trial. Satan wants to use the event to tear us down and wipe us out. God wants to use the same event to show us how faithful he is and how real he can be. Stuff's going to come. It's going to be varied or manifold. You know, Job lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his possessions, and he lost his health. To me, that's pretty varied. Our temptations in our lives, as we all know, they come in different places. Maybe it's greed, maybe it's money, maybe it's our sexuality, maybe it's our tongue. It's varied. But here we're, we're commanded to, that we're, we're to know that for the testing of our faith, there produces something. There's fruit as we go through things. James says that our faith, as it's tested, refined like a, like a metal being refined, it produces steadfastness. 
as steadfastness has its effect, that we may become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Some translations translate that brought into maturity. The trials, the, the fruit of trials is faith, steadfastness, long-suffering. I think of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Long-suffering has a purifying element, a perfecting element. Jesus, they also, Paul also said that he who began a, work, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As we come across trials and stuff in our life, I'm reminded also of the account in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys might remember those dudes in the story. Nebuchadnezzar had that huge statue erected, and everyone was to bow down and worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no way, we're not worshiping anyone but God. So what did they do? They fired up the furnace, got her nice and hot. And brought him before the king and said, will you bow down and worship? And their response was, no. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Steadfastness and faithfulness. Now we know what happened there. They, that really made Nebuchadnezzar mad. And they got those kilns even hotter to the point that the soldiers died trying to toss them in. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood in the furnace untouched, unharmed with a fourth, the angel of the Lord. They came out of the furnace with with not a scent on them of, of fire. Not a hair singed. You know how easily our hair gets singed? Not a hair singed. And the ropes burned off, but no scars. That is exercising faith. Trusting that the Lord is going to do a work and being okay if he says, if the answer is not this time or not how you expect it. Faith is like a muscle, is it not? You know, you think of a bodybuilder as they go out and they're trying to build up their muscles. It's a lot of work to increase And all that needs to happen is to bust that arm, and now it's in a cast and doesn't get used for six or eight or ten weeks. And what's happened is it's withered away because it hasn't been exercised and used. Our faith is to be exercised and used to grow and to remain strong. I read, faith is not positive thinking. The faith that is spoken of in the Bible is based on what God says, not on what we think. Hebrews tells us that faith is required to please God and that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And faith comes by what? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we're grounded, we become more and more grounded in the word of God. You know, as we go through trials and tribulations, it's easy to have different questions as we struggle with what's going on in our lives, is it not? I know I tend to have the question, why God? Why God? Why do I have to go through this? How come there's not enough money? Or how come this is going on? How come I'm sick? How come my family life isn't what I want it to be? How come, how come, how come, how come? You know, that's the same question that Job's wife and Job's buddies were continually hitting him with. It was why, why, why? Why don't you just give up and curse God is finally what Job's wife said. 
Throughout the entire book of Job, you got his three friends taking turns, taking shots at him, saying, you're righteous, you're not 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 righteous. You must have done something, you must have done something, you must have done something. The lesson that God eventually taught Job in it all, we know that Job started with a pretty good mindset. He said, naked I come from the mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken, but blessed be the name of the Lord. The end of the book of Job, we see that God challenged Job on the reality that our righteousness, the man, righteousness that we can muster, is not worthy. We must be clothed in Jesus' righteousness, the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, that being Jesus Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, what for? What purpose do you have for me? What lesson are you teaching me about yourself and about the reality of the depravity of my heart? When we come through stuff, we have choices, you know, when we get into stuff. Um, I'm reminded of the book of Ruth, and you, and you might be familiar with it, uh, Ruth and Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they're living in Bethlehem. You know that Bethlehem means the house of bread? They were living in Bethlehem under the protection of God's hand. But, you know, they were in a time of trial. It was a time of famine. And they, they took off. They said, let's get out of here. And they went to the land of Moab. Now, I haven't quite entirely figured out exactly what Moab means in this. I've been wrestling with this all week. But the, the Moab, Moabites are the family of Lot and his daughters. Remember when they got him drunk and they fathered a child with their dad? That's the descendants of Moabites. Definitely outside of the perfect will of God, they'd moved out over there. And things were good for a while. Their sons got married, but next thing you know, their hu her husband died and her sons both died. So eventually she returned to the house of bread, to Bethlehem, came back under the hand of God, under God's protection. But you know, when she showed up in Bethlehem and people said, oh, there's Naomi, she said, don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter. She came through trials and tribulations, and she came out bitter, which often we do. You know, as she was back under the protection of God's hand, there was what's called a kinsman redeemer, Boaz. He redeemed the debt and brought life again. Boaz is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, the debt that he has paid for us, that he has redeemed us from the pit. At the end of the book of Ruth, she says, call me Naomi, which means my delight or pleasantness. One of my favorite verses lately, I tripped across it in my quiet times a while ago, is Hebrews 13, 15. Though let him then, sorry, through him let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, that being Jesus. I had no idea that I'd end up with this scripture in my message, believe me. I get distracted very easily. I'm sure if I was younger, I would be diagnosed with ADHD and put on Ritalin or something like that. My brother-in-law has this t-shirt. I should own it. I should own a whole stack of them. It says, easily distract. 
Can't even get the word out. So I was hiding in my little office that I've kind of got set up. I got a bookshelf now, and I'm like, ooh, I have an office. And uh, so I'm spinning circles on my chair or something like that. And I look up, and I have this book I bought a long time ago. It's Spurgeon on Praise. Oh, that's interesting. Look at that. I have a nice book. And I grabbed it off the shelf, and I thumbed through it. And the, I was doing one of those real quick thumbs, too, right? And I got near the end. Hey, Hebrews 13, 15. Spurgeon on praise. So I started reading what Charles Spurgeon had to say about praise, that prince of preachers, and trials. And I was blown away. Shall we sit down in despair? Will we be crushed beneath this burden? No, truly, while we lose honor ourselves, we will ascribe honor to God. We will count it all joy that we are counted worthy of reproach for Christ's sake. Let us now praise God continually. Let the fruit of our lips be still bolder confession of his name. Let us more and more earnestly make known his glory and grace. If reproach is bitter, praise is sweet. We will drown the drops of gall in a sea of honey. If to have our names cast out as evil seems derogatory to us, let us all the more see to it that we give the Lord the glory due his name. While the enemy reproaches us continually, our only reply should be to offer the sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise. Jeremiah 33 talks about bringing thanks offerings before the Lord. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I also read that praise is the heart trust and heart content with God. Trust is adoration applied to practical purposes. You know, I believe when we go through trials and tribulations, God gives us a choice. We can come out bitter or we can offer praise. And when we offer praise, I believe he changes our heart in the circumstances and brings steadfastness. Our option is to give praise or to wallow in my pity in circumstances. It's to be called Naomi, pleasant one, or to be called Mara, to allow the Lord to use the testing and trials to bring us into fullness, completion, and maturity, or to remain in infancy. I thought it was profound, the call to give praise in times of trial. Don't worry, we're not finishing the whole chapter. So God allows trials and testings of our faith. That would be a trial, wouldn't it? They say the old-time preachers used to preach for hours and hours and hours. What's that? What's need snacks? Another coffee break. Anyhow, so he carries on in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I love this verse. 
who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Hey, I don't know if any of your children or any of your names are Sophie or Sophia. That's the Greek word for wisdom. So hey, it's just, it's cool. Wisdom wise, Sophie, Sophia is a great name. But when we talk about wisdom, we, we can banter the word around a bit, and we often use the description that wisdom is the correct application of knowledge. I think that's a great definition. We can have knowledge, and we can try to apply a lack of knowledge, and neither of those ever work. You'll see that in Scripture, knowledge and wisdom are inseparable. God uses them together in harmony. Wisdom is God-given and God-centered discernment. I like that definition as well. Daniel tells us that its true wisdom is only sourced in God. He said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. Wisdom is even personified in the person of the Holy Spirit. And you may remember the last series I went through was 1 John. And in chapter 2, verse 27, we were told that we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to learn and and discern. That's wisdom, godly discernment. We know that wisdom is a gift from God. And Proverbs tells us, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He wants to give it to us. You know, there's a huge difference between that godly wisdom and the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is finite. The wisdom of God is infinite. You know, the wisdom of man is basically boiled down to our senses, is it not? what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch, and what we can taste. Even good science is always based on reproducing something, something observable, something we can see. Wisdom of God is infinite. The wisdom of man really has a lot of unknowing. We don't know the beginning from the end, do we? Whereas the wisdom of God is, we use the word omniscient. You know, I looked up synonyms and antonyms, I think I said it right, for the word omniscient. Synonyms is all-seeing, infinite, wise, knowledgeable, preeminent, having complete knowledge or understanding, perceiving all things. The antonym is stupid and unknowing. That's it. (laughs) When I think of wisdom and the wisdom of God and its infinites and its omniscience and its power and its application, I'm reminded that God, he says here that he wants to give us wisdom. He gives it to us freely. We need to ask him for it. I think we need to ask the Lord for wisdom every single day of our lives. Ask him to give us a fresh pouring out of his Holy Spirit every day. Contextually here, it's also to give us wisdom in times of trials and temptations. To help us, I believe, offer a sacrifice of praise when we're in these tough times. The Lord will help us in that, I believe. I love God's attitude towards the giving of the wisdom. Without reproach. I actually like how the King James states it. The King James says unbridled. I think of the idea of a horse. No bridle in its mouth. He's not holding him back. That's what we do with a bridle, is it not? He gives it in abundance. And we're to ask him. It's like a subject coming before the king, but he wants us to come before him and ask. 
You know, we should be longing for the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of our God. I, I was thinking of, uh, you know, Psalm 42, verse one, uh, verse 1. We know it well, and you know, there was the song that was going around forever that was, it's a beautiful song, it's written off a great psalm, but after a while it started driving me crazy because I heard it so often, you know, as a dear it's beautiful. I like it a lot more now that I don't hear it every Sunday anymore, but I hear it once in a while, and I can just worship the Lord with it. But there's something that I learned when I went to Israel about Psalm 42. You know, Psalm 42 very likely could have been penned by David at En Gedi. For those of you who are there with us, En Gedi is a little oasis. It's right alongside of the, uh, the Dead Sea. When they say the Dead Sea, they're not joking, it's dead. The land around it is barren. Every image that you have in your mind of a desert, well, actually, I shouldn't say every, because I used to, it's not like the Sahara with sand dunes. It's more like moon rock. And there's these little deer called the ibex there. To me, the idea of longing after the wisdom of God and panting as the deer is you're between oasis to oasis and you're thirsty. It's not that you're, it's not that you're a little bit parched. It's that you need water for the necessity of life. It's so different than a deer around here who can drink out of all of our water features in our backyards. You had to search out an oasis. The Lord is to be our oasis, as Matt talked about last week, as Jesus being our Sabbath, our place of rest. James tells us we're not to doubt I don't know about you and I, this hits me because I, I tend to be a lot like these waves. I get tossed around. He says we're to ask in faith without doubting. I'm thankful that the Lord is gracious. He gives us these great promises. He gives us these tough commands and he gives us grace. And I'm so thankful for that because he says to ask I want to ask the Lord every day to help me with my doubt because I don't want to be like a cork on a, on a wave in a storm going every which direction. Even a wave itself is started way out at sea by one storm and it's buffeted by another storm as it nears the shore. We've all seen the pictures of the waves going this way and the spray going this way. Bounced around. I'm thankful that God gives wisdom without reproach. He doesn't hold it against us for our failures because he's already paid for our sins and failures at the cross with the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's ask for wisdom. Let's ask to have help in applying knowledge. Let's ask that the Lord gives us knowledge and faith. It's a gift. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fail and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Something crazy happened when the church started. Suddenly it didn't matter what tribe you were from. Suddenly it didn't matter your family wealth. Suddenly it didn't matter your background as to your position in the body of Christ because we are all equal in Christ Jesus. We're all under his blood. 
Spiritual maturity is not based on our bank account. And therefore, the people serving in the churches were not serving there because they were someone's master or because they were someone's servant, but they were there because they'd been discerned to be godly men. You could have had a slave as the pastor of the church and the master as the new believer. It revolutionized the world. Nowhere else would that have happened. Absolutely revolutionized things. It turns the status of people upside down. And later on in, in James, it says that God is no respecter of man. He's not respecter of our titles. He's not respecter of the things that we build up for ourselves. He's a respecter of the blood of Jesus Christ. The idea here is also is not that it's sinful to have wealth, but it says for this, uh, in regards to wealth, as the rich man has been brought lower, brought even, as the lowly man has been brought up, that we're to be boasting in Jesus Christ. But you know, the, we cannot boast in our things, in our stuff, because they're like flowers that wither up in that desert. They go, they're temporal. And the idea here is the rich man that fades away is the one that is caught up in the midst of his pursuits, that has put the pursuits of this world, the pursuits of his wealth above the things of God. Be careful in our pursuits that we put our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ above the things of the world. Above the evil intentions of our heart and the evil thoughts that are developed thereof. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Does that not sound like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward, for great is your reward in heaven. And then James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. I love that. God promises a reward for our steadfastness, for our faithfulness, when we keep our eyes fixed on him. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the time of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Or to bear fruit. Alexander McLaren, uh, a pastor from the 1800s, wrote this. Such righteousness may be imperfect here on earth, but when we look upon ourselves, we may feel as if there was nothing in us that deserves. It's not true. Or that even can bear a crown be laid upon our brows. 
But if the process had begun here by love and are struggling upon the reception of His grace, in death it will be perfected. Here's, the, here's a warning too, but death will not begin it if it has not commenced in this life. We may hope that if we face, um, we may have hope that if we have our faces set towards the Lord and our poor imperfect steps have been stumbling towards him through all the confusions, the midst of flesh and sense, our course will be wonderfully straightened and accelerated when we shuffle off this mortal coil. Isn't that great what Jesus will do for us? When we have set our, when we're stumbling towards him, isn't that, isn't that a great definition of our life in Christ? We are trying to, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and we still stumble, we're stumbling towards him. He goes on to say, but there's no sanctifying in death for the man who is not a Christian whilst he lives. And the crown will only come on those whose righteousness began with repentance and was made complete bypassing through the dark valley of death. For those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been faithful in our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we cross over, when our, when our tent expires, that little pop tent that's held in with the little stakes and those little gimpy wires that get tripped over is gone and it's replaced with a crown of life. Isn't God good? He wants to give us a crown of life, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness, because of his righteousness, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed over us, that's purifying us from all unrighteousness. To me, the challenge in this text, the biggest one is to offer a sacrifice of praise in the midst of my stuff to keep my eyes on Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning for you and for me is that we would be able to do that, that we'd be able to offer sacrifice of praise, that we would be able to remain steadfast, that we would allow Jesus to finish his work that he has begun in us to bring us to completion, to perfection. I love the promise that he will give us the wisdom that we need because in of ourselves, we ain't got it. Only when it's imparted on us. You know, this morning, we're going to be taking part in communion. I, I want to stop right here because we've ended with what Jesus has done for us. And communion is a time to remember. If you guys want to come on up again. Uh, is a time to remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His blood that was spilled for us and his body that was broken for us as he took upon him the weight of the sin of the world. So hey, as these guys are, are, will lead us in a song, and, I, and as you feel uh, ready in your heart, take, I challenge you to take a minute before the Lord. Make sure that you're right with the Lord. The scripture tells us that we're not to come unworthily before the communion table. That means that the, we have open communion here, but what, I, I will say this. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I ask that you just quietly refrain. This is for believers as we remember what Jesus has done for us. If this is your first time here and you have not, and you're struck by what Jesus has done for us, his blood on the cross, his righteousness, his blood that's been spilled for us, 
I ask you, invite you to ask the Lord to clean you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Take a minute and do business with the Lord and come forward and join us in communion as your first act of obedience. Amen. Amen.